You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. What do Presidents Garfield, McKinley, Eisenhower, and Reagan have in common? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Daria Ruffalo, a trauma, surgical, critical care nurse practitioner for over 30 years at Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. Daria Ruffalo, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you very much. Describe your background. Well, I started my career really about 30 years ago in cardiovascular nursing and quickly kind of got a little bored with that and moved into trauma. So I've spent the last about 10 years as a trauma nurse practitioner, and prior to that, I worked as a bedside nurse. And interspersed into that, I've done some third-world nursing, but when I'm ever in the United States and I'm working in a hospital, it's always been a trauma. What sparked your interest in health care for the presidents? I've always had an interest in history. I travel a lot, and I actually have a sister that's a librarian, a mother that's an avid reader, and periodically they toss a book my way and say, well, this kind of you know, is will reach your need as far as wanting to study history and it has some healthcare stuff in it, try this. So they always kind of proofread things for me. And whenever I had anything to do with any type of injury, trauma, history, and someone that was famous, I always had an interest in it. So that's what I usually kind of had a, a bent for. Do you share your research in Grand Rounds presentations? I have done them both formally and informally. I've done some uh, little kind of in-servicing things throughout the hospital. I've also done a surgical grand rounds here in the hospital for the surgical residents as well as the health staff and medical students. And then I speak at most national critical care courses and conferences for critical care nurses and trauma nurses, and I've shared that information there as well. What do Presidents Garfield, McKinley, Eisenhower, and Reagan have in common? Well, all four of them were victims of some type of acute health care issues. Three of them were from violence, and Eisenhower had actually a very significant amount of chronic illness that subsequently kind of came to a head with an acute health care crisis. But I have to say all four of them were they're high-profile cases, and in some instances they actually did not get the most appropriate care or the most high-technical care available to them. And I often think it's in terms of people were cautious about what the press was saying about them, what the public might think, and so subsequently there was a little hesitation in the kind of health care that the presidents received. Let's start with President Garfield. What happened to him? Well, Garfield is an interesting character. He was an Ohioan, and uh, he was elected in 1880, and he was one of the last of what they call the log cabin presidents, and that he truly was basically self-educated until he got to the college level. And um, he really was a genius. He could write with his right hand Greek and with his left hand Latin simultaneously. And when he was 48 years old, he was very tall, fit, athletic, no health care issues. He was heading out to Washington, D.C. with his family for a family vacation and was approached at the train station by a gunman, Charles Goteau, and who subsequently shot him in the chest. And they later found also, I'm sorry, he was shot in the back. And I later found that he was had a secondary wound that was on his arm that didn't get found to the next morning. Of note, Gartu was actually a um, a lawyer, political fanaticist, and someone who had approached Garfield multiple times to say uh, he wanted to be an ambassador to Europe. And when President Garfield did not feel he was appropriate, that's when he subsequently decided to shoot him. Who cared for him? Well, it's kind of an interesting cast of characters that took care of Garfield. One of the first doctors on the scene was Dr. Townsend, and he was a prominent internist. And what he did was he gave Garfield some brandy and some ammonia, and noticed that Garfield was like kind of slipping in and out of consciousness. And at that time, Garfield said to Dr. Townsend, I am a dead man. But the doctor who really took charge was Dr. Bliss, very high-profile, well-known general surgeon. 
But he also had a team of five additional consultants. But of note, there were five additional surgeons that were there that were to serve the nursing care role of Garfield. And that was kind of interesting because even in the press at that time, they said, why do we not have nurses taking care of Garfield to do his nursing care? Why are we using doctors? And that kind of went on to kind of lead to some interesting things when you looked at his subsequent outcome. But probably the most important character or the most high-profile character that got the most press was Alexander Graham Bell, who was kind of like the Donald Trump of, it, of his day. And though he was very bright, and he certainly, we know, that invented many very important inventions, he also was someone that liked to be in the limelight. And as soon as he heard about Garfield's injury, he thought he could bring to the table one of his newer inventions, which was called an induction balance. And he was going to use that to try to find the location of the bullet. What was the course of his treatment? It was of note. It was just unrelentingly hot when he was injured. He was injured July 2nd. Nine hours after he was injured, it was at that point where they decided to give him some champagne and some morphine to take his coat off just to see exactly what his injuries entailed. And by July 4th, about 48 hours after his injury, he had vomited every half hour after that, was in excruciating pain, and had 14 people probe his injury in his back. Some were lay people. Some were doctors. Some were just the people that were there helping to care for him and periodically would stick their hand in there to see if they could feel the bullet. So there was interesting documentation of at least 14 people. And of course of note is that surgeons at this time rode horses. Certainly their hands would not be as clean as you would expect when you're riding around on a horse. And one of the kind of more prominent things at this time with these surgeons when they were caring for people that had traumatic injuries is that they would wear their waistcoats or their jackets still with their patient's blood on it. So you can see there'd be a high likelihood of contamination. But he suffered on for about three weeks with high fevers and significant amounts of pain. He had excruciating pain in his lower extremity. And three weeks after he was shot, it was Alexander Graham Bell who came up and said, I think I can help you locate this bullet. And actually tried to use this induction balance by driving it into this wound in his back but had problems with it kind of having some artifact with the metal springs. So never really determined where the bullet was, but did pull out a piece of bone, which was later found to be part of Garfield's lumbar spine. He continued on the entire summer through August to mid-September. His weight was down 90 pounds. He was covered in massive pustules that had pulse coming out of them. He developed parotiditis where he couldn't eat. His eyes swelled shut from infection and inflammation where they had to cut them open. And finally, nearing um, the end of August, early September, his weight was down so, he was so nutritionally compromised, he was obviously infected. They opened up his wound 13 inches and they started enemas of egg bouillon, whiskey, and morphine. September 6th, he was awake and alert during this entire thing and followed all of his doctors to say that he knew that he was moribund, he knew he was not going to survive this and wanted to leave from Washington, D.C. to go to New Jersey so he can go home to die. And on September 13th, he had excruciating chest pain, started vomiting up blood, pus was coming out of his lungs, by the next morning was dead. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Daria Ruffalo, a trauma, surgical, critical care nurse practitioner at Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, discussing emergency surgery of the presidents, a historical perspective. Daria, what were the autopsy findings for President Garfield? Poor Garfield. First off, before we talk about that, I just want to kind of interject that when he went on to die, his doctors actually sued for their payment of $18,500 and got it. 
And the defense of Mr. Gartu, who is the man who had shot him, was that not that he had not killed President Garfield, but actually his doctors did because they took such poor care of him. But the autopsy findings were when they located the bullet, it actually was lodged behind his pancreas and had actually fractured his lumbar spine. That contributed to a lot of the pain that he talked about in his left leg and foot. There was a massive amount of pus that had accumulated. He had a subhepatic abscess. He had a huge renal abscess. His entire large intestine was filled with pus. And thinking that he had died of a, a myocardial infarction because he grabbed his chest in chest pain, they were sure they were going to find that he had died of a heart attack. He had clean coronaries. And what they listed, though he was filled with pus and massive amounts of infection material, they listed his cause of death as a small splenic artery aneurysm that was less than four-tenths of an inch in diameter that they thought might have broken loose and caused a hemorrhage. So he had no intra-abdominal hemorrhage present. Would he have lived today? Well, you know, you never want to speculate on anybody as far as would they live or not, you know, when you're looking back. But I can tell you this, we know that Lister's publication of Antiseptic Principles that was published in 1867, said, even back then, in his time, you need to wash your hands before you touch wounds. There was obviously no clear leader who was in charge here. When you really, really look at, there's some contemporary gunshot wounds of the time that had similar injuries. They survived. And truly, when you read his postmortem, there's nothing there that could show that he had like a mortal injury that resulted in his death. And it was most likely associated with his post-injury management. What do you tell new staff about patients who present with these types of injuries? Well, a tenet of trauma for the 30 years that I've been in it is that there is a trimodal pattern of death. And what we know is this, is that trauma patients die immediately at the scene when they first have their injury, and those people die of blood loss. Then patients die either three to seven days after their injuries, and those are from sustained shock. And we've made huge, great strides with that. We know that from as far as prevention, we tell people to drive slower, wear seatbelts, wear helmets. We've made big strides in the time of death where we see patients die at the three to seven mark, where we're looking at the critical care management of them. But what we do know is the third kind of blip on the map when we look at why patients die of trauma is sepsis. And that's usually 10 days to weeks after their injury. And we know that we're dealing with an immunocompromised patient. We know that the injury, the stress response, blood transfusions, all of those contribute to patients' inability to fight infections. And we're just so vigorous about hand washing and screening for infections and watching wounds for infections. So we know that infection is something like we say, if it barks like a dog and it stinks like a dog and it smells like a dog, it's a dog in trauma because it is so common. What happened to President William McKinley? Well, McKinley was uh, another interesting character. He was an Ohioan as well. He's a Republican. He had served two terms. He was a very well-liked president. At the time of his incident, he was 67 years old, and though he had no documented health issues, he was short and stout and kind of portly, and that's going to kind of contribute to some things that caused his care to be somewhat complicated. And he was actually visiting in Buffalo, New York at the Pan American Exposition. And at this time, it was really hot. It was early September. It was 1901. And the president actually would kind of stand online and you could have a formal introduction to him. Because of the heat and people were sweating, it was customary for someone to put a handkerchief over their hand before they would shake the president's hand. And indeed, while he was standing in line, it was not unusual to see all these men with their hands engulfed in a a handkerchief. And so what had happened, that this man, Leon Zygols, who was a fanaticist, he was also an Ohioan, stood in line, and underneath his handkerchief, he had an Ivor Johnson revolver, and as he got up to President McKinley, he shot him directly into the abdomen. In the minute that we have left, what was the course of his treatment and outcome? Well, he had a very, very significant kind of rocky course in that his operation was undertaken by a gynecologist, 
he was taken care of by a gynecologist at surgery within the small little infirmary, so they had a very difficult time being able to see where his injury was. So the, what they decided to do is they found that he had actually had a gastric injury, and the debate became, should they lay a drain in the, in the president's wound or not, since he had had contamination from his stomach? And there was multiple debates and conversations, and they finally decided, the gynecologist said, I don't think we should put a drain in. And over the next eight days, McKinley suffered and suffered with high fevers, low blood pressure, high heart rates, chest pains, massive amounts of pus pouring out of his wound. And on his post-operative day, number eight, he became restless. They gave him whiskey, nitroglycerin, oxygen, and he said, I am no more, and died at 2.15 in the morning. I'd like to thank our guest, Daria Ruffalo, for discussing emergency surgery of the presidents. I'm Susan Dolan, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.